Welcome, Ben. Uh, welcome to the show for the Legacy Wealth Podcast. Excited to have you on today. Um, just to kind of get us started off, we're talking about self-storage as an asset class. Help us get a good understanding of success stories in self-storage. Sure. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. Awesome to be here. Uh, self-storage is a super fun asset class, even though we're just talking about five corrugated pieces of metal that you put your stuff into and forget about for 10 years. It's really fun from okay. an investment standpoint. A success story, just to go right to your yeah. question, um, is one in which we can identify a facility that's owned by a mom and pop owner, hasn't raised their rates in 10, 15, 20 years um, that we can purchase and we can produce a very high increase in revenue very, very quickly. Mm. Um, so an example of that, we purchased a, a facility in North Carolina uh, just, just the end of last year and rents were 40% under market. So we, we do what's called ECRIs, existing customer rate increases. And we were able to produce a 38% increase within the first four months of ownership, which kind of changes the landscape when you're looking at T3 cap rates, not as important as perhaps like the year two pro forma cap rate. Um, and what are, what are cap rates? Cap rates. Great question. Cap rate is uh, the capitalization rate. That is a ratio of how much net operating income you can achieve against the purchase price of an asset or the value of an asset. So lots of different types of cap rates. You can have your trailing three month cap rate against purchase price. You can have your year two pro forma cap rate against total project cost. So kind of defining your cap rate is an important thing when you're when you're speaking the language. Um, but yeah, cap rates typically when you're talking about multifamily or any other asset class that has a longer lease time frame than a multifamily asset, uh, cap rates are usually a T3 or a T12 trailing three month or trailing 12 months. Um, but when you're talking about self-storage, if you can increase your revenue by 40% in the first four to six months of operations and you can buy off of a T12, that's a home run experience. You have to buy off of a year two and the person knows that that's how you should be pricing. You know, and then, then you're then you're basically paying for the opportunity to put elbow grease into the into the deal. But no. So let's quantify some of that. So home run, right? Big success. What does that look like with this with this asset class? Is like a 10x is 10% is like give us some context. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to remind myself. I'm not in a real estate podcast room right now. Yay. We're in a very right. wide berth. Okay, yeah. So real estate is still a fixed asset with um, low return, low risk relative to say a venture capital investment into a startup mobile application. Right. right. So totally. we're, we're not going to be 10xing our real estate in a in a in a two year period. We're not we're not slacking this outcome in 11 months, um, but we we can achieve a two x in a five-year period. Uh, and, and that's, that's, that's a great outcome. That's a okay. very good outcome. And, and sometimes you can get a three X in a five to eight year, uh, hold period. That's a, that's a fantastic outcome. So you come in, you find a self-storage unit, um, or, uh, is it compound? Is that kind Faci of facility? I, I, now I want to go with compound. Let's go with compound. Right? Cool. We find a compound yeah. and we're like, look, you're way undercharging. There's a lot of operational efficiencies to be had here with our expertise. We're going to come in and apply that expertise. And then we're going to make a lot more money off this, um, this property and this investment, essentially. Yep. From a, from an investor standpoint, it's really as simple as that. It's cool. Here's the revenue. Here's the expenses. They're already in place. And then we're going to get a little bit of debt on the bottom or maybe a lot of debt on the bottom of your P&L. Uh, and that's going to help leverage our, our returns. But it's really collect rent, pay for your operating expenses, pay off your debt service. There's your cash flow. And if you can increase your revenue by 40 percent, you can probably increase your net operating income, your pre-debt service cash flow by 80 percent. 
if your debt service is flat, yeah, that's also an 80% increase to your, well, I guess not an 80% increase to your free cash flow, but a greater than 80%, a leveraged 80% increase to your free cash flow. So, so as like, you know, I'm putting my prospective investor hat on mm. uh, and I'm looking at all the different asset classes that I could be investing in. There's, you know, I've heard about funds. I've heard about investing in multifamily. I've heard about mobile home parks. I've heard of, you know, uh, name an asset, right? Why, why am I, why should I be looking at self-storage? Well, so since you're, since you're going to give me a bunch of options inside of real estate, can I, can I make an argument for why real estate first and then sure, dive into it? Sure, okay, go for absolutely. It. So, you know, right yeah. now we're in a very unique time frame where both stocks and bonds suck. It's not typical thing that's happened in the last 40 to 60 years, right? So uh, I think the average investment into alternative asset classes of the average American is 9% Mm. of your portfolio. That includes any type of fixed asset, whether it's real estate or you're investing in ATM machines or gold coins or whatever. Um, 9% is not a lot. And there is modern portfolio theory that suggests that it should be as high as 35%. So when you think about the, the potential of real estate as an asset class just by way of future supply and demand for the investment vehicle, there's a lot of opportunity for real estate to grow and for these capitalization rates to compress. And you can think of cap rates as a trading value. Uh, If I am earning five cents for every dollar of investment today, but tomorrow you have a huge demand for it and you're willing to take it for four cents for every dollar of investment, that means that the value goes up even though no additional net operating income has been produced, no increase in revenue, no decrease in debt service, just because you have an interest in the asset class that you did not have before, the value of the real estate increases. So if we can anticipate in this unique time frame where stocks and bonds are very unattractive and there is a much uh, higher interest in other asset classes, alternative asset classes, specifically fixed asset classes, specifically U.S. domestic commercial real estate, we can we can anticipate uh, a higher value increase. Okay, so that's my argument for real estate sure. as a whole, right? Now diving into why self storage, all all these asset classes are great. I mean, there's there's a few that we could kind of ping pong back and forth on what is the future going to look like, whether it's office or or retail, uh, and the nuances of which work inside of office or which don't. Um, but self storage is um, a fundamentally strong asset class, specifically because of unabated American consumerism that is only getting stronger every day. Self-storage does not do well in stable times, but the world is always changing and it's never stable. So whether it's a great uh, time, whether it's a booming economy, it's the 1920s all over again, or we have uh, the Great Recession happening, that's volatility and self-storage performs well in volatility. Death, divorce, downsizing, uh, promotions, upsizing, getting a new house, uh, a new kid, whatever it might be, all of these life events typically involve some type of storage. One in 10 households uh, used to have uh, a storage unit. It's now one in nine households. And that that transition happened over a three-year period. So, so, so let me break that down a little bit um, just to simplify it. So it's, look, Americans in general, we like to buy lots of stuff and we need a place to put that stuff. And in times of change, let's say we're downgrading our house or we're upgrading our house, right? Or you have some sort of other dynamic change going on. Most people utilize a storage unit to store their extra stuff or as they're kind of in transition. And mm-hmm. that provides a really good opportunity for the asset class. It, it, it does. And then you kind of, for, for guys like you who are living in what I've just recently learned is some like smash up of a hotel and apartment, you, you kind of live a little bit more of a potentially transient, I'm going to call slightly futuristic lifestyle. And you've adopted some minimalism or essentialism 
into how you live. But there is a wide, wide, the majority of the average American uh, not only uses storage for these transition periods, but finds themselves extending that transition period into perpetuity. So uh, a a very large swath of our tenant base has had their units for three, five, 10, 20 years. Uh, And they just, and and even though the math doesn't make sense, they might be spending $45,000 on this unit over a 20 year period. Um, They would not pay $45,000 for the contents of that unit, but they will continue to pay the $100 and $150 month check every month. So as an investor, am I, and I know that your, uh, your company, your fund has multiple different options in the space, but let's talk about the asset class in general. Okay. Uh, we'll get to yours uh, later on in the show. What am I investing for? Am I investing as an investor for cash flow? Am I investing for equity growth? What, what hat do I have on? What is the problem that I'm trying to solve when I'm investing in this asset class? If uh, and just to frame the question inside of real estate, right? Not inside of the entire landscape of investments. Is that the is that the question? No, I, I would say as in the landscape of investments. Okay, so then so then I'm going to give you two answers again, if that's all yeah. right. So why invest in real estate um, a, as part of your overall portfolio? Real estate is uh, the only asset class that I think that has uh, ha- had a increase in value over the last hundred years, almost every single year. And over every 10-year cycle has always increased in value in a way that's outperformed the S&P 500. Um, 90% of all millionaires hold real estate, and every single billionaire holds a massive amount of real estate. Real estate is the most dependable way to increase your allocation of net worth relative to all of society. It is the most dependable way. Um, So real estate is this collateralized, fixed asset, this tangible thing that is very difficult to have vanish like perhaps some other investments you might make, perhaps uh, something speculative um, like crypto, which has an outsized return if you do it right and an outsized downsize, downside if you do it wrong. Mm. Real estate has significantly less volatility and very dependable increases to its value. Um, because of the nature of its tangible asset in the physical world, um, there is a limitation on being able to produce more of it. You can create more real estate. You can't create more land, but it takes time and cost and energy to create more real estate. There's always another stock. There's always another coin that you can create. And the value of what you have today can change overnight. Uh, So that's why I'd say real estate. It's a great complement to financial instruments. If you do not have fixed assets complementing your financial instruments in your portfolio, uh, you're not likely to outperform uh, the best in your peer group. So why sell storage? All, for the most part, all asset classes in commercial real estate do very well. Uh, Self-storage isn't much different than the other asset class. There's always oscillating supply and demand for the space, the space markets. Like, what do you use industrial space for versus hospital space versus retail space? So there's always oscillating supply and demand. The reason that you do storage is because you learned about real estate. You decided you wanted to invest. You put a bunch of money into multifamily because that's what the majority of of commercial real estate is. And then you realize, oh, I'm overexposed in multifamily. There's other things like storage or industrial or office or retail. And so perhaps you want to hedge against your multifamily without taking it outside of the commercial real estate class. Self-storage has outperformed uh, over the last 25 years. Every of the REITs, I should say, of self-storage have outperformed every other um, composite of REITs in commercial real estate of any other asset type. 
that just because that's happened doesn't mean it will continue to happen. But the reason to do it is really to diversify away from multifamily. That's cool. That's super helpful. Yeah. 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 Okay. Understood. So to, to repeat back to make sure I'm understanding you correctly, it's uh, why self-storage is more of because I want diversification in all types of real estate that perform generally well. That's that's my take. I, I mean, I, I'm a passive investor too. I don't put it all into storage. So, you know, right? So, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think all of us, right? Like yeah. all of us invest in multiple different kinds of asset classes. I'm invested in crypto and in single family homes and in multifamily and developments. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just a great diversification strategy. So I, I get that. I'll, I'll also add one more thing that if you, if you look at the performance of self-storage kind of layered over uh, GDP growth, and you can kind of see those down spikes in recession times, you'll see that self-storage stays flat, if not sometimes improving. So yeah. it's a very recession, not going to say proof, but recession resistant asset class. When it's probably really hard just in general for someone to switch storage units, right? So it's like you have all your stuff in there and it's like, you know, how much effort does it take to move it over to another storage unit? So I imagine you guys have, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but you have really long lifetime values of your customers. Well, when you know the address, the mailing address of your customer, and it's in another state than yeah. where the tenant, or the, the unit is, super that, that's super helpful to yeah. know. And, and, and that is true. I mean, when we first met, I was living in New York yeah. and I had, a, I had a unit and it was very difficult after I moved to Colorado to kind of get around to going back. I mean, the, 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 the storage facility compound made a thousand dollars off yeah. of me more than I anticipated just because of how hard it was to get back and fit that into my life. Yeah. And that's before I was married with kids. So you now there's, I mean, the, the, the majority of our tenant base are those that haven't gotten around to doing the emotional work to separating themselves from the items in that unit. And it's just more convenient to say, I'm going to let these things continue to happen. If somebody could show up on television, like an evangelist, and all of a sudden get the average American to get over their attachment to things, the self-storage industry would be in trouble. Sure. That's Until probably that going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> probably going to get the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about starting off in the um, asset class. How did you kind of get your start? Uh, yeah, fell into it. So um, was into real estate, had syndicated my first multifamily building and did not enjoy participating in the residential sector. Knew I wanted to do something different. So when I moved out here, I started a conference called the best ever conference for commercial uh, real estate, mid-market syndicators, operators, and investors. And by way of doing that, I met uh, a series of potential partners that were kind of starting off doing something new um, and uh, got married up with, with a duo that had previously been flipping um, brownstones in Washington, D.C., doing pop tops and dig outs. They were doing very sophisticated. What are brownstones? Brownstones, yeah. like, a, like, a, like a townhome in, uh, in Washington, D.C., like a row home okay. uh, that might have been a single unit. They would do a pop top, add another story or a dig out, like turn a, turn the basement into a unit uh, and then turn one unit basically into three or four condos, condoize it and sell the units off. And so, so they were they were doing um, pretty cool stuff there. They were they were good at construction management. I had acquired 50 single family, multifamily units. I was good at the acquisitions and the underwriting and, and uh, the cash flowing investment play. Uh, but we were both squeezed out of our, our respective strategies. Um, so we did a, a decision-making process. Um, it's actually a military decision-making process came from the army branch of the military. Um, our CEO, Scott Lewis, my partner is, uh, is, is, a is a military guy and he's, he's brought a lot of that education into our organization. And through that process, we used uh, evaluation criteria, which includes ease of operation, ease of maintenance and ease of eviction, uh, to, 
determine which asset class do we want to focus our energy in. And there was a couple of options left. And we looked at the historical performance, explained that historical performance and extrapolated out if it will continue to have that performance. Self-storage was the clear winner. And it at the time was still very, very fragmented. 75% of all facilities were mom and pop owned. So there was opportunity to continue to enter only five at the time, publicly traded REITs. So uh, there was just opportunity to enter the space. Interesting. It's super fascinating. So something I'm hearing maybe in between the lines is uh, that self-storage is an opportunity now uh, with buying up these mom and pops. But at some point, all the mom and pops will have been bought up. That is true. It will be a uh, an institutionalized asset class. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the time to get in to this, at least with your strategy, is now. I, I think so. Um, you know, it, the earlier you get in on something that works, the better, right? right. So yeah, it, it was great in 2016. It's still great today. Um, I, I think that the supply and demand really works in our favor in the long term. You know, there, there's there's some Fed produced pressures that are maybe causing some short term hiccups. But in the long term, cost of construction is doubled. Cost of uh, interest rates on construction loans are up 70 percent. Smash those two things together. And there is a lot less territory in the United States where it makes sense to build one, which means if you're in secondary and tertiary markets, you've got a moat around your business plan for a couple of years. Describe primary, secondary and tertiary markets for. Yeah, uh, very, very, very fuzzy definitions that anybody can define however they like yeah, sure. <laughs> some common uses of primary or either the top 25 or top 50 MSAs that would include places like Denver, uh, Seattle, MSAs, MSAs metropolitan. metropolitan statistical areas. Yeah. You can think of cities. So New York, LA, Atlanta, DC, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, Cleveland, Denver, Seattle, uh, Houston, Dallas, all the big ones. It's top 50 or top 50 in population size. Um, secondary would either be maybe a, a, a bedroom community outside of one of those primary MSAs. Think like Forney, Texas, which is a solid 15 minutes outside of downtown Dallas, uh, 37% population growth, four years running, something like that on average. Um, so that would be kind of a secondary market or a secondary city that falls outside of that top 25 or top 50. Think like, uh, I don't know. Fort Myers, Naples, yeah, but not Fort Miami Collins, or and Tampa. yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Fort Myers was is a great one, uh, and then tertiary. You're kind of getting into those towns where uh, you might not know the name if you're not from the state. So um, think, uh, you know, Texarkana, Texas, right? South, Corsicana, Texas, right? Sure. So the thirty thousand people in town, sixty thousand people uh, in the MSA. Um, you know, that's still a solid population, but. If you're not from Texas or you haven't watched that Netflix special about that cheerleading squad, you don't know Corsicana, Texas, right? Or if you're like obsessed with fruitcake, Corsicana, Texas is the international home of the fruitcake. Uh, we own, we own there. That's why I know that. <laughs> random, uh, random knowledge drops. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got rural, which is like all the stuff where, you know, Spicewood, Texas population 600 right outside a lake, that kind of, okay. you know, that's, that's your rural. That's okay. helpful. Yeah. One of the things we're big on, obviously, at the Legacy Wealth Podcast is, look, we, we think that a lot of people, they hear about an asset class and they they immediately think, maybe I should go do that. And I think the problem with that there's, is there's a lot of unknown unknowns. So let me ask you, Ben, what did it take for you to become an expert in the space? And then a subsequent question of that that we can kind of dovetail onto is, you know, when you think about somebody that's just kind of dabbling in the space, right, or maybe doing it part time, they have a full time job. Contrast their day with your day. Basically, tell us what you're doing as an expert. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first question that, that you asked, which is, to, I think, to be an expert in anything relative term. I always kind of, you know, 
am I an expert? Who knows? I'm still learning. Right. Right. Um, I think to be an expert in anything, it's, it's like, could you perform that, that concerto on the piano in front of a crowd of 10,000 people? You need to use your entire life. You need to dedicate your entire working hours to becoming excellent at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so if, if uh, I think if someone is considering, I want to invest in self-storage and I want to be a active operator, if you want to do it at the scale that our fund is attempting to do it at, it needs to be your entire life. Um, trying to do it on the side, uh, it is an operation. It is not a passive investment uh, and, and you will run into difficulty. Um, but what, what is my typical day? So is this the part where we kind of start diving into Spartan? Um, almost. Yeah, all right. Almost. almost. All right. Almost. <laughs> I mean, my typical day, we're looking for deals, but we're also running a business, right? So uh, it's not just um, my role is to identify the investments, uh, optimize them, and then identify the appropriate time to dispose of them. Um, so I'm spending my time doing that. We're looking at every single listed deal. The interesting thing about the self-storage space is that there's very, very few brokers that have any meaningful volume. There are maybe a half dozen brokerage groups that account for 70 to 80% of the transaction volume in the storage space. Um, so that is something that's unique compared to other commercial real estate asset classes where you kind of have one brokerage group per city for that asset class. Um, so you need to build those relationships, maintain those relationships, um, it's a very, very small incestuous industry. So you need to be uh, knowledgeable and careful about who you work with and who you don't work with and what happens and what you say after you work with certain people. Um, uh, but you know, we're kind of at a transition point in our organization where we're going from being investors to being business owners. Uh, and so we are, we are kind of uh, separating our ownership group from our storage investment platform. So more time of my day, just to answer your question in a way that probably doesn't get the outcome for this podcast is being spent on building leaders that can own certain functions of our operation and ensure that they can perpetuate the right outcomes in our investments uh, without as much involvement from me or my partners so that we can go do the next thing that we want to do. So what I'm hearing is this is a very active business, even reg- if whether you have one self-storage facility or hundreds. Super um, active. And so so are you looking at like 10 deals a day? Are you looking at a, like 500 deals a year? Are you what, Are you spending like a week doing due diligence on one property? Like are you, you know, are you, 20 days out of the year, are you like visiting facility? Like what is, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so we, we look at over, uh, let's see, it, it works out to be about two, two deals per day. And a lot, most of those deals are multiple facilities. Wow. So you guys look at two deals per day. Yeah. And, and so maybe another way to like an alternative way to frame kind of this portion of the podcast is wh- where does the margin come from? Right. What is the difference between the average returns versus you know, the the returns you're able to gain. So a couple examples would be, what is the benefit of scale? And what is the benefit in you guys being able to look at so many deals? And like, let's let's quantify that or at least frame it a little bit. Yeah, okay. So um, yeah, I'll, I think to answer your question, I'll, I'll, I'll start by, you know, uh, talking about what, what the activity looks like. Yeah, so two, two deals per day. We're, we, we spend about two days doing due diligence on a deal that we, we really want to, uh, excuse me, doing feasibility on a deal that we really want to take down. Um, due diligence, we have a 700 point due diligence checklist that we go through um, that we have an entire team dedicated to that we can do as many as 20 assets at one time uh, before we start feeling feeling the burn. 
Um, we have uh, a massive operations team uh, that includes marketing, revenue management, um, field operations, customer success, call center, um, website, uh, transitions, um, and, and then, and then, you know, there, there's, there's onsite staff, district managers, regional managers, and then like a, a VP of, of, uh, of, of field operations. So very, very large operations team that all needs to be managed, all needs to be communicating with each other. So then you kind of get into the business operations of like, what's our, in, what's our, uh, our, our file sharing system and our communication paths and what's our meeting cadence and, and all that stuff. What are our KPIs? What does a, a day of success look like versus a failed day? Um, so yeah, very active operation and all of that is how we're able to create the margins at scale. Sure. If we can buy one asset, but we spend all of our personal time making that asset successful by showing up and cutting the branches off the trees and dialing, uh, uh, talking to the customer on the phone and inputting their information into the system and fixing the gate and calling the security company when the alarm goes off, all of that stuff, I would be acting like a mom and pop operator. I would not be valuing my time in the PNL. And my time does have value because if somebody were to purchase the asset from me, it would be replaced with a third party manager that would be charging for that time for the next owner. So we are we are not disillusioned by the reality that our time cannot be dedicated to operating the facility. Okay, so now our time is one level up. Our time is now dedicated into investing in the assets, identifying which ones we should purchase, calling the banks, negotiating the terms, identifying our capital sources managing the third party or managing the onsite management team. But that time also has a cost, right? And so that needs to also be underwritten into our opco. So, all right, let's take us one more level up. Right. And, and now I need to find people that can generate the investments. I need to find people that can manage the operations team. And every time I do that, it requires more facilities to finance that operation. But every uh, additional team member takes a smaller chunk per square foot of our NOI than the previous team member did yeah. in theory. So as long as we're doing that and our NOI continues to scale, NOI. While, uh, our net operating income per square foot, thank you, yep. continues to scale while our headcount uh, costs per square foot continue to come down with each incremental headcount, we're moving in the right direction. So let me, let me do a layman's translation of, of all that. It's, it's a, it's a team sport. Yeah. And it's a full-time sport. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Team sport, full-time sport. The more you get, the more money you can make per, right. per unit. And yeah. that's what it really takes. You know, when, when, when someone says, oh, I want to enter that asset class, the returns that they have in their mind that are, that are market, which I think you mentioned two X in five years, it's that if you have a team and that's if everybody's full-time. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. You can, you can hustle it together. I've seen some groups do that. Sure. Um, but I'm sure you've seen a lot of examples where they can't. I've, I've seen the examples where they can, and it takes two generations yeah. and our, our team has done it in four years. Yeah. So I, that, I think that's the difference. Yeah. Impressive. Well, it makes sense. I mean, anytime you can dedicate to your art, you're going to have yeah. better returns. <laughs> I appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you, do you want to continue on this? Um, the, this expert thread? Or well, just to- real quick, what we haven't touched on is the risks in the space. So there's mm-hmm. always risks right? In any asset class, right? Even if it's low risk. Um, what are those? Yeah. So uh, the, the first one that comes to mind is um, what is the collateral that you're actually buying? So I, I think collateral, you know, collateral, collateral is what is the physical, tangible thing? The walls, the roof, the windows, the doors. Um, it's, it's referred to as collateral because when you get a, a loan from a bank or from anyone, mm-hmm. they say, okay, uh, I'm going to hold on to this car until you pay me back, or I'm yep. going to hold on to your house 
until you pay me back. That whatever that thing is that they are assigning value to on behalf of the loan that they will take if you do not repay the loan, that is the collateral. Uh, so the collateral in self-storage is, is a bunch of corrugated metal, which is very different than a building like this one where you can live and work and play in. If uh, everybody here were to vacate because the con- uh, current use is no longer valuable to society, it would be a little bit easier to restructure the internal space for another purpose without completely demolishing the building. So the collateral has a higher value to a lender, whereas in storage, the collateral drive up, roll up, sell storage, one single or one story um, asset just doesn't have another purpose. So collateral is higher if it has multiple uses. Yeah. Um, so for instance, oh, this was an apartment building. Now we've converted into commercial shops yeah. or something like that. But you're saying with storage, which obviously makes sense, the way it's built, the way the structure exists, it pretty much can only be used for storage. Yep. Which is why up until about 10, 12 years ago, you did not find a lot of loans in storage that mirrored those of other major food groups in commercial real estate, like hospitality, retail, office, industrial, and, and multifamily. Um, but that's changed in the last 10 years. For whatever reason, the, the lending community does not seem to care about the collateral. And those loans look almost the exact same, if not better, for self-storage because the demand is so high to invest in self-storage. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. And it's not even with respect to us, the investor, and it's not even anything that the person taking on the risk cares about, um, which maybe is an indication of how much risk there actually is. But maybe what you're saying is the risk is potentially that trend you saw 10 years ago and before could could maybe come back like in an unpredictable future. If Mr. Evangelist shows up on TV and somehow solves all of our collective insecurities and allows us to detach ourselves from our stuff and creates, you know, 50 percent higher occupancy, there would be no other use for the building. And he, we would he be sounds scared. like an amazing guy. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I mean, something that I may be read, uh, registering here is also uh, you maybe buy an asset and you miscalculate how much you're going to raise rents by or your expenses are slightly higher, but, but other than, or maybe like a hurricane comes through and demolishes your building, but you have, you have insurance for that. You have insurance um, for that. Yeah. Or maybe, or maybe a city's just not as popular as it was. Yeah. Right? The, the so, population is declining in the city. Right. You know? So like everyone's moving to Austin. Oh, like suddenly people don't want to live in Austin. Anymore. Yeah. But I mean, here's the thing. You've got census data, which sucks, but then you've got all this other data. I mean, we've yeah. got so much, I mean, you've got you can measure the number of U-Hauls that are going from uh, L.A. to Boise, Idaho and back. And you can see that publicly because you can look at what's the cost to take a U-Haul from L.A. to Boise or to take it from Boise to L.A. The cost in one direction from L.A. to Boise is twenty five hundred bucks. The cost in the other direction is four hundred bucks. That's an indication that there is not enough U-Hauls to get people to Boise with their stuff. Right. So you can you can predict population growth with pretty high accuracy because Hmm. of all of the data that our species has been able to collect and the infrastructure of data warehousing that we've been able to produce. You can you can predict income growth. You can predict job growth. You can predict rooftop growth. Um, So that we don't we don't really see that as a risk so much when it comes to the demographics. I think I think what there are risks are uh, and when you're investing in any piece of real estate in any town. Um, you know, there's one asset that we own in, in, a, in a place called Fort Valley, Georgia, and the economy there is basically driven by one company, Bluebird, which makes buses. And they did great during COVID. Don't know why, uh, but they're, and now they're investing in electric vehicles. Um, so we didn't really underwrite Fort Valley, Georgia. We went and learned everything we could about the Bluebird Corporation and underwrote that corporation because that finances that economy and it finances job growth and population growth and income growth. And for our listeners, underwrite? Underwrite means to evaluate um, 
the thing that you are trying to make money off of financially. Okay. <laughs> a financial evaluation. Yeah. So I think this kind of dovetails into the next next portion where like we talk about the secret sauce of your fund. So so you're talking about all of these different things that you analyze. Can you can you maybe go into more detail of when uh, what makes you guys different? What's your sauce? What's your process? What's your strategy? Yeah. So I think the perspective matters. Who, who's the avatar that's looking in on what makes us different? Um, when we when we talk to our peer group, we raise capital from retail investors uh, in a way that nobody else does. Uh, retail investors being those who are accredited investors with a million dollar net worth or more, excluding their personal residence, or have a two hundred thousand dollar income as an individual or three hundred thousand dollar income joint household. Uh, and those accredited investors, we have over nine thousand of them in our network. About ten percent of them are activated, a little over ten percent, um, and they have made over. 2,000 placements with us. And consequently, we've been able to raise a quarter billion dollars of capital without ever going to Wall Street, without ever going to a, um, a major institution that can control us. That freedom of movement gives us flexibility. That flexibility allows us to take on different debt. It allows us to take on different complements of storage. For example, um, we bought two assets in Longview, Texas, and then one came up just a mile down the road and it was 4% occupied. Now, it might sound terrible to you, but it was a 62,000 square foot facility being sold for $1.6 million. Was, what is that? That's uh, less than $30 a square foot. Meanwhile, Longview, Texas is trading for $80 a square foot. All we have to do is get that thing occupied, which you can do in a couple of months, but no bank would lend on it. Mm. So by, by way of having that retail capital, we have the flexibility to say, that's a good business plan. We don't have to fit somebody else's box that doesn't pay attention because $2 million doesn't matter to them. We can go buy that, complement it with our existing storage and fill it up super quickly and, and, and make money for everyone. Um, so from that perspective, our retail capital is a unique selling proposition. From the retail investor's perspective, I think what makes us different, um, and I've had five or six years to ponder this because there, there isn't all that much difference from a fund. You, you, you get money, you buy real estate, you do your best to operate it well, you get the right note on it. Um, but how do you make sure that that outcome is going to be great? Is it the deal? Is it the market? I think more than anything, it's the team. And so how do you evaluate a team? And the team's important because uh, a great operator can make um, a terrible deal be okay. But a bad operator, a negligent operator um, can take a great deal and, and turn it upside down, take all the money, run to Mexico, right? Um, so how do you evaluate a team? I think for us, our ability to infuse culture into our organization, develop clear um, strategies that our team uh, revolves around and focus on developing leadership skills and leadership potential into our entire organization, that focus allows us to be very malleable and to, to kind of row together and align ourselves into producing the right outcome. So even if we have a hiccup in a deal, we have five years to make it work. The first year doesn't go according to plan. All right, we've got the flexibility. We've got the network. We've got the alignment internally. We've got the culture. We've got the team that says every week, we believe in growth. We believe in respect. We believe in integrity. We believe in tenacity. We believe in transparency. And we're going to use those values as our guardrails to produce the best possible outcome for our winning aspiration and our mission statement. And so us being able to <coughs> clearly communicate that not only to our team, but to our investors, I, I think that's 
it sounds like this soft fooey stuff, but it really has made a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, so something we we talk about pretty often, Mike and I, is that uh, you're either you should be focused on being an incredible operator in your active income business, and then you should go find experts to invest in the other asset classes. And and so, you know, the question that's coming up in my mind, putting my perspective LP hat on, is okay. I, I I'm hearing this uh, this talk about team. What are questions, what, what goes into my due diligence process to, that I would ask you as a prospective um, fund that I would invest into versus another one that would help me understand that you have this special sauce that maybe another fund does not? You, I mean, so I'm going to ask this to you as, an, as like personally. Sure, yeah, right. let's do it. You've, you've, uh, you've hired people? Yeah. You've hired people. Okay. You've, you've worked with people, right? Yeah. hundreds. So, okay. So what are, what are the best questions to ask someone that you're going to work with that maybe is going to take some of the work off of your plate? Because that work is your baby, right? That's work that you care about. And I think the, the kind of the leadership heuristic is if somebody can do something at least 80% as well as you can, but can give you that time back and you can trust their character that they're going to come and tell you when they don't know something, when they've done something wrong, they've made a mistake. And they're going to own up to it. And they're going to do everything they can to fix it. That's kind of what you're looking for when you hire someone, right? We're we're just we're just employees for hire, right? I mean, we're taking your money, and you, and it's your hard worked cash, hard hard earned cash that it, it is going to define your ability to retire. It's going to define your children's ability to go to the right school, whatever it might be. Define like your next home, uh, and 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 you are trading time for control. Right? You are giving up control in exchange for time. And allowing us to do the best job that we can to produce a return, to produce that outcome with that cash that you'd like. So if, if you've ever hired someone, if you've ever worked with someone, even if you just interviewed someone for another team and you are looking for those soft skills, you are looking for that glimmer in their eye that tells you that uh, they're not a sociopath, right? That's kind of what you're looking for in due diligence. And how do you how do you write that down on a list and say, show me your track record? Right. That's important. Don't get me wrong. Show me a show me a track record of a bunch of six percent IRRs and negative 10 percent IRRs and tell me that's a good dude. I'll agree with both of those things. Good dude. Good gal can't produce an IRR internal rate of return, which is a metric for a return. Um, I would not go with that. But if I'm going to rank those two things, track record versus the character of the person and their ability to uh, produce a great outcome, despite the challenges and obstacles set before them, that will come. When things are not just easy, um, I'm going to rank the character of the person higher than the track record. And I, I'm going to rank the team first. I'm going to rank the investment thesis, the intelligence of that team second. I'm going to rank the um, the market third. And then I'm going to look at the deal. The deal is so far at the bottom. I'm not going to do due diligence on somebody else's deal. I don't know what makes a good deal work outside of self-storage. And I'm not going to evaluate the survey and the title and the zoning and the physical report. I might check out the underwriting just because that's a skill set that I have. I'll open up their Excel model and say, all right, what's their expense to gross income ratio? What's the debt service coverage? Just to make sure there's no errors in the math and like, do these heuristics kind of comport with my expectations? And if not, maybe I'll ask a question or two. But it really comes down to, have I met you in person before? And have we talked about your obstacles and how you overcame them? So what are the questions you wish more potential LPs or LPs asked you? How did you overcome a hard thing? Tell me a time when. Tell me about a situation when. Um, because if they ask that question in advance, and that's what's important to them, when something hard happens, which we've had some things hard happen, 
they don't come saying you should refund all the fees, which are the fees that we use to finance the team that ensures a great outcome. You should sell everything at a low. You want us to sell everything at the low point. You should, um, you know, refinance or, 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 or you should, you know, give yourself, you know, nine lashings for your mistakes or whatever. Like I, I'm, I, I would prefer to have investors that, um, uh, read us as having the best possible intent that box ourselves in to making sure we produce the best possible intent by looking at our KPIs, um, by looking at the outcomes and compensation and incentives of our team to ensure that we're getting the best outcome, as opposed to focusing on the details of the of the deal today over a one month or three month time frame out of the entire five year target hold. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I like that because it's approachable no matter how much you know about an asset class. And obviously, when you're doing diligence, you know, as a retail investor on an asset class, the whole idea you're doing it is because you want to hire someone to do this for you. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. don't know the right questions. To right. Ask. Yep. So it's okay. Let's focus on the character. Let's focus on how I would want the investment manager to, to respond to me, to honor my time and to be truthful and transparent with me. Mm-hmm. Now there is a, there is a delicate balance there, right? Because you know, I've met many, many a retail investor that, you know, invest in a deal because their friend invested in a deal or whatnot. Right? Well, so, I would, I would just never do that yeah, as well. Yeah, right. Yeah, so like yeah, yeah. I, friends are like, Oh, should I invest in Spartan? I'm like, if you want to, but I'm not going to try to convince you because I do, I, I value this friendship more than your $50,000. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Is there uh is there anything that you, I would kind of like to go down that, that rabbit hole, just that one question of, um, like tell us about a time where shit went sideways. Yeah. Um, I mean, the best example that I have that's full cycle is something that I personally did outside of Spartan. And is when that, you is say that full cycle, yeah, you can say full, and yeah. then when you say full cycle, what do you mean? Full cycle meaning I bought it, I operated it, I sold it, wind, winded down the company that, that the asset was held under, uh, that that's full cycle, the yeah. whole thing. Right. So a, a lot of the stuff that has gone sideways, um, at Spartan has already fixed itself and, and has a produced a potentially great outcome. Like it's, it's kind of floating now, or, uh, we're in the middle of it and talking about it now doesn't give us the opportunity. I mean, I, I'm happy to, but doesn't give us the opportunity to showcase what the endpoint is going to look like. Yeah. So, um, the stuff that went, I mean, the, the one that I took full cycle that didn't go according to plan, uh, was my very first syndicated asset in multifamily. It was the experience that made me realize I don't want to do residential personally because the investment thesis that I came up with requires me to um, separate people from their livelihoods, their homes uh, at a very high rate, not just because they're acting terribly, um, but just because they had a bad month or mm. bad two months. And uh, so a high eviction rate. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't my favorite. Um, you know, I did it because yeah, I, need, I need to, to do the, I need to do the investments, yeah. but um, I, I probably overpaid first investment, very exuberant. You know, when, when you're kind of getting in the space, you're trying to be active for the first time. Mm-hmm. You just like all this time, all this time, all this time. I just want to get a deal done. I want to get that sponsorship fee. So you kind of go in and you, you, you can, you can make any deal work on paper, right? If, if you're an Excel junkie, you can figure out how to make that look all right. So I probably overpaid somewhere between like six to 8% on the price. And then, um, and, and the reason I did that is because I took guidance from people who were incentivized to get me to buy the thing, the broker, the property manager who was going to get the business on revenue, regardless of the net operating income, um, the banker. So um, instead of getting outside, non-incentivized, unbiased counsel, 
Uh, and then that property manager just did not do what they said they were going to do. They, they said, these are the rents you should be able to get. They never even attempted to get to those rents and struggled with rents 10% below that. Um, so way oversold. Um, and uh, I, I had planned on making distributions almost like right out of the gate, like month one. And distributions? I, distributions, <laughs> uh, a monthly or quarterly check of a return for your investment. A distribution is- uh, The money coming the, back. The money coming back. That's yeah. why I'm doing this. Yep, yep, doing yep. Just to get some money on the way back. That's your mailbox money. All right. So I, I think I did it for three or four months and then I was like, oh, I'm bleeding. I'm gonna cut it off. So I cut it off. Um, our boiler broke, our HVAC broke, our roof started leaking. Um, even though I had the PCRs that said, yeah, you don't need to do any of these. Maybe you'll need to do one of them in the sure. next five years. They all smashed out in the property first 18 compliance months. Reports? Um, property condition report, excuse me, property condition report. Did I say PCR? Yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Property condition report, a report that's done by an inspector who is, um, licensed to tell you if your piece of real estate is more messed up than it appears to be from the eye of a layman. Sure. Yeah. And, and look, I want to bring this full circle back to what we were discussing kind of in the other part of the podcast, which is these are the things you've had to learn, right? Yeah. This is how you've become an expert. Business so cartoon. when you enter into an asset class, I think you're thinking, okay, I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to start making some money and that's going to be awesome. And you're not mm -hmm. thinking of all the things you have to deal with because you don't know. You mm -hmm. don't know of all the problems and all the problem song that you have to do and all the kind of like finagling with expectations and, and what actually happens. Right. And so I just want to highlight that. I mean, what you're really demonstrating to the listeners is look, you have to be prepared to have a game plan for all these different things that may not even be on your radar. Two, two quotes that I love to mash up, I think is the Eisenhower quote, planning is essential and plans are worthless. And then that Tyson quote, everybody's got a plan until you got punched in the face. I'll throw right? one more in there that yeah. I love, because <laughs> I think it's actually relevant to what you, you know, you, you talked about the thing that went wrong and it's the things that, you know, the things that break you make you. And it's mm -hmm. like those learnings are really why you're able to operate with such efficiency today is because mm -hmm. you went through that. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, fast forward three years later, I had to break up that multi, I mean, it was six parcels. I had to break it up into three different transactions and sell them piecemeal by like finagling, um, you know, getting this tenant to move into this unit, even though she was probably happy um, where she was, she was kind of interested in maybe going up to the two bedroom. And uh, so we get an extra couple hundred bucks a month out of, out of that. And I, I financed the entire move to make it happen. Right. So things like that to just kind of eke out just a little bit more to get my number that I waited a year for just so, just so I could get a 7% annualized return for my investors, sure. which, you know, Sounds like a decent S&P 500 thing, but is a terrible return. It's not great. Right. And I worked for free for three years, basically. I mean, all the upside went to them. At the exact same time that was happening, I had two dozen single family houses that had gone well, and I was continuing to buy them. And I had them going so well, I'd actually paid a couple off free and clear. But I was watching other people making $50,000 in two months on a flip. And I crowdsourced about a quarter million dollars to do a couple of flips, tried two out tried to do a, a model where I didn't have to spend that much time. Uh, I tried to outsource a lot of the work and the first two went well, kind of some false positives of reinforcement. Like, all right, I'm going to put more money in. Dumped a quarter million dollars, did five flips at the same time. Every single one of them lost money. I did not just make a return. I lost the entire principle of that fund plus additional funds from myself. Um, but it was an equity investment. So in theory, all of my investors were kind of out of luck. Um, but that's the moment where I'm like, all right, I'm in my twenties. I've got a long runway ahead of me here. The people who've invested in me today are going to be the foundation of who invests in me 
and my team and my my brain in the future. Uh, so I I remortgaged those houses that I had paid off free and clear, and I made sure everybody got paid back eight and a half percent. And and what does the fund target? Um, what does your fund target? So that was a flip fund that this was 10 years ago. Um, but Spartan investment group, uh, has three funds. One of them is a, is a private debt fund. Uh, it, it finances acquisitions, uh, or it finances expansions. Uh, we don't take a margin on that fund. It just, it gives us flexible capital. The other two, uh, funds are an income fund and a growth fund. The income fund targets cash flowing assets, uh, that are, uh, higher stability, it's going to be a lower overall internal rate of return or a lower re- return on your investment, uh, but it's going to be lower risk because you've got occupied stabilized assets. Our growth fund uh, is targeting development opportunities. So parcels that are ready to uh, be built ground up and uh, certificate of occupancy deals, meaning those that were built by others, a merchant builder who are now selling them empty uh, at the moment in time that they are allowed to open for business and handing them over to us and taking on the lease up risk. Both of those types of risks, construction risk and lease up risk, is more risk than owning a stabilized storage facility. Uh, so the growth fund has a higher return uh, to compensate for that risk. So are we talking 5% IRR? Are we talking 10, 15, 20? Like what? Give us, and then like lock a period. Yeah. So internal rate of return is is a time-weighted return. And so it gets a little bit funky. I'm going to give uh, kind of a simple interest return range, if that's all right. Sure. Uh, so an, an annualized total return. Uh, for our income fund, it ranges from 14 to 18%. And an annualized total return for our growth fund ranges from 20 to 25%. So if I invest 100 grand uh, into your growth fund, mm-hmm. um, I... Four to five years later, it'll double. Okay. Okay, because 20% times five years is... Targeted. Yeah, targeted. It will, it will double. Yeah, Should yeah, double. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, why would I choose... You, you mentioned three different funds. Um, why would I choose one fund over another? Yeah, your risk profile. So if you want to be first on the stack, meaning you get paid before the investors in our other two funds, which is lower risk. You don't have to have as much returns to make sure that those distributions, those monthly checks are going out. Uh, if, if you don't want to be exposed to lease up risk, construction risk, or even ownership risk, uh, you would participate in the debt fund. Um, you are uh, going to get paid first, basically, uh, across our, our capital stack. Um, and it is going to be secured by personal notes and uh, uh, fractional uh, deeds of trust. So it's just a much, much lower return. And it's a very consistent 7, 8, 9% return. Uh, there's no upside, though. So it's a significantly lower return. Same time frame, five years. Same time frame, five years. Yeah. Can be shorter. Sure. Can be longer. Uh, if you're if you're if you're a yield chaser, meaning you want just like the most return on your money, you don't need to live on that money. Uh, you don't need to back right away. You're okay with it being locked up. You don't need to get a check every month. You're okay to just get one big check five years from now. That's double what you what you gave us today or four years from now. Um, then you would you would be a great candidate for the growth fund uh, because you're going to get the biggest return. You are going to take on more risk, um, which is when you know understanding us and getting beat up in development and construction and, and how do we compensate for those things? What are, what is the scar tissue we have from development and construction? Learning about that is, is probably the most important due diligence you can do. What are our war stories in development? Because we have some really cool ones. Um, it, but if you're, if you're that yield chaser, you want to be in the growth fund. And if you're somewhere in between where, uh, I, you know, I can get, you know, 4% at the bank, I can get seven, 8%, you know, giving it to my family members or whatever. I want something that's a double digit return. 
construction development kind of freaks me out. But, um, you know, the idea of a stabilized asset that's already producing cash flow, that sounds like the kind of risk that I can, I can be okay with. And I'm going to get a mid teens, uh, return. That's then, then the income fund is for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Ben, thanks so much for having us on. This was amazing. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks again. All right.